Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today, as they do every week, for a look at all that shapes defense and commercial aerospace markets worldwide are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Amalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back to the program, uh, and it's good to have you back on a Sunday. Yeah, Fargo, wouldn't be Sunday without it. Yeah, Fargo, thank you. Always a pleasure. Great to be back on our regular Sunday schedule, Fargo. Thanks. Uh, indeed. Everybody had a double dose uh, this week of you guys, and I'm, I'm glad that they could take it. Uh, before we get started... Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by HII, Leonardo DRS, GE Marine, a GE aerospace company, and Helicon Chemical. Uh, as I said, everybody welcome uh, back, Ron. Uh, some very positive U.S. economic news on employment and uh, inflation coming down, uh, which is uh, all good news as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund uh, convened in Washington for their spring meeting. Um, how, what are some of the broader sentiments and how did the group perform against them? Yeah, for the week, uh, the S&P was uh, up a little bit. Uh, 79 basis points, so just under a percent. Uh, and then when you look at our, our coverage um, more broadly, the defense names were largely flat. Uh, Northrop was up about a half a, half a percent, uh, Lockheed down. General Dynamics was flat. Uh, it, kind of more interesting, you had some of the airlines report. Uh, American Airlines missed their numbers. Their shares were down almost 9%. Delta had a pretty good quarter, and it was it was flat. Um, now, kind of you know, the kind of the real market action this week was in uh, in Boeing and uh, Spirit Aerosystems, which we will talk about later. Boeing ended the week down about five percent, and Spirit Aerosystems ended the week down eighteen uh, percent, trading off uh, almost twenty percent on Friday, and Boeing was off of almost six uh, percent on Friday. When you look at some of the other indicators, we look at um, interest rates kind of crept up a little bit. Um, we ended last week uh, in in the low threes. Now we're in the mid threes. So the ten year uh, yield was at three and a half percent. Brent crude has been hovering in the mid eighties, and we're still there at eighty six. Uh, and WTI is at, at eighty two. Uh, and I think you know, kind of the the broader market sen- sentiment now is Fago. I think well, well, what now? Where do we go right. to now? Um, and uh, we're you know, rapidly moving into earnings season. Uh, so we'll hear what, what a lot of companies have to say in terms of, you know, are we going to have a recession in the second half? Is it going to be a hard landing? Is it going to be a soft landing? I think everybody's you know, you know, used to the fact that, yeah, we probably are going to have a recession. Just what's the tone and tenor of that going to be? And, and a lot of that will probably be coming out this quarter in terms of what companies are seeing in terms of order activity, so on and so forth. U.S. economy showing a lot of resilience uh, obviously, and we talked last week a little bit about sort of uh, the, you know, the the bipolarity of you in the market. Oh, my God, there's a disaster coming. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, my God, it's a disaster. Uh, and we heard from um, uh, Bill Lynn, uh, the former deputy defense secretary, who's now chairman and CEO of Leonardo DRS, and indicated that economic pressures are easing uh, a bit, supply chains getting more sensible and, and inflation uh, coming down as, as hard as uh, uh, perhaps uh, oil producing countries are cutting back production led by Saudi Arabia to try to drive energy prices 
uh, back up a bit. Um, we're going to talk uh, more about uh, Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems uh, in a minute, but I want to uh, kind of get a broader European market sentiment. Uh, Sash, what was the week like? Uh, because some of these trends uh, right, are, are global trends, and, and both the INF, IMF and the World Bank uh, tended to be a little bit more positive than negative in their views. What was sort of the European market sense, and how did the group perform against it, right? Because it was uh, a big week, uh, and, you know, the war looms in the background, obviously uh, accentuated by uh, the leaks uh, of information, obviously coming from a Massachusetts Air National Guard Airman First Class, uh, Jack Teixeira, that added to a little bit of the gloominess surrounding uh, Ukraine and its upcoming offensive. But give us kind of the broader market take. Europe is, you know, to coin Bismarck's phrase, a mere geographical expression. There was a huge spread of stock price performances. Um, I mean, actually, I can't find uh, standouts. And very few stocks in Europe followed Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems down. That was interesting. Airbus appeared very slightly up on the day, but... Um, you know, the stock's generally been trading a little bit higher over the last couple of weeks anyway. One of the interesting things, I think, coming out of the IMF meeting, um, there is quite a lot of pushback on IMF forecasts at the moment. So, you know, the IMF is forecasting the UK to be one of the um, weaker performers economically in 2023. And uh, this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. But still, I always think when people, um, you know, play the, play the, the ball and not the person, then uh, that's at least newsworthy. Um, UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt immediately sort of came out flailing and said, you know, IMF forecasts have actually understated UK economic performance. Uh, I can't remember the last seven sets of, of um, forecasts that they, that they put on. Um, and, uh, you know, whatever we think about the context, that, that's prob probably the case. But uh, one of the things I was struck by was looking at um, European inflation performance um, uh, over the last couple of months or so, is the massive spread in European inflation. So if you're the European Central Bank, which after all is responsible for inflation in most countries in Europe, with the exception of the UK, Switzerland, uh, uh, you know, the ECB really has the tough job. The European Central Bank has to cope with inflation rates that in Germany are down in mid-single digits, in the Baltic states are up in the mid-teens, and sometimes in the high teens, and are spread over that entire, uh, you know, 10% framework ever since. So if they get it right for Germany, they are going to get interest rates chronically wrong for the Baltic states um, and for some of the Eastern European countries. They're simply not going to control inflation anything like fast enough. If they focus on the Eastern European states that are, you know, where arguably inflation is still uncontrolled, then Germany is going to have a really tough second half because inflation rates, uh, sorry, interest rates are going to stay high for much too long. And actually, it's probably more likely that the ECB raises rates rather than holds them or cuts them. Um, and, you know, I'm not naturally a, a either a fan or a sympathiser for central banks. You know, this is this is what the job consists of. But it seems to me that controlling inflation in, in um, Europe at the moment is one of the toughest gigs. And... The stats that came out this week, the, uh, you know, low level, but still quite political disputes about IMF forecasts on um, inflation rates, I don't think made any, anyone's job any easier as we go into the second quarter and then into, into the uh, second half of the year. And the odds are that, you know, they will get it wrong and that inflation in some areas of Europe will be by 
the standards of, let's say, the last 15 years, jaw-droppingly high as we go through into 2024 or thereabouts. Um, and so that's a, you know, that's a sort of broader macro problem. The paradox of this is that therefore equities are performing quite well. And they're performing quite well because the stock market is at the margin worried about the fact that the ECB will keep rates high for too long. And if they keep rates high too long, or even, heaven forbid, raise interest rates, then bonds are going to be lousy. You know, Eurozone bonds are going to be a really poor investment, on which basis, you know, that the, the least worst option, and the least worst options in investment are um, not always a terribly rewarding investment asset class of themselves, but, you know, the least worst option might just be equities, even if you think that equity is going to be hit by inflation, even if you think that equity is going to be hit by late growth, even if you think that they don't actually know what they're doing in the first place, or they have supply chain problems, they're still better than Eurozone bonds. So it's a really, really puzzling week in that respect. Um, and, you know, just to, in parentheses, most European aerospace and defence companies are coming up to their Q1 results. Q1 results will be the week after next and then running for three weeks or so. So there's, there's a sort of a news vacuum going on, and that doesn't help the share prices, but by and large, they were, they were up rather than down uh, this week. Um, but it's not very high-quality stuff. I'm, I, I'd love to be able to give you much stronger you know, uh, calls on individual stocks, but the, the macro... Um, uh, the, you know, the macro news flow coming out has been more than usually con conflicting. You know, even though there are pockets, uh, very <laughs> strong pockets, as, as we've discussed, uh, Rheinmetall, a strong pocket, Hensolt uh, yeah. uh, being propelled on, on strong uh, radar business. Let me bring you to the pound, right? Adding to this uh, perplexing landscape we're in, the pound was forecast to be weak and yet has been on a tremendous run. And folks are looking at that and saying, why is it on a tremendous run? Why is it on a tremendous run? And what does that actually functionally mean, good and bad, for the British economy at this point, when some of the fundamentals are still a little bit on the challenging side? Look, the fundamentals are on the challenging side, absolutely. That, not a lot has changed there. The UK economy isn't going very fast. And the Bank of England uh, has more than the usual number of problems in trying to work out how to manage interest rates, although arguably not actually not as much of a problem as the European Central Bank. Because um, the European Central Bank has got to deal with 27, 28 different countries, all of which performing differently. The Bank of England only has to deal with one, but it's a, a complex one. The, I would suggest to you that the issue with the pound is that we are six months, eight months on from a bizarre and I would, you know, this is a personal comment now, but pretty distressingly dreadful period politically where we had incredibly weak, incredibly um, poor performing politicians doing an incredibly poor job. The tail end of Boris Johnson's premiership was a show. Liz Truss's premiership was a complete show. And Sterling got driven down by that because nobody could trust our politicians, nobody could trust our um, currency. And the fear was that they were making such a mess of it that interest rates would uh, have to go up and the UK would go into recession. And I, you know, six, seven months ago, the fear was the UK would go into a massive recession, tail end of 2023, going all the way through to 2024 and who knows where after, and that it would be a, a perennial laggard against the Eurozone. Um, April 2023, you know, Rishi Sunak uh, as Prime Minister, Jeremy Hunt as 
um, chancellor, objectively, they're doing an okay job. Now, you know, the bar is very low there. You know, as long as you're not burning the barn down, you're actually doing an okay job in UK politics. But actually, they're doing a bit better than that. They're, you know, Sunak is, is, by and large, crossing off some of the, the bigger problems in UK politics. Relationship with the EU, relationship with Ireland, Good Friday Agreement, all those things. And Jeremy Hunt is, by and large, sorting out the budget and trying to keep the, the deficit under control, even though members of his party are screaming for tax cuts, because that's what they do. Um, and as long as you have sane people in charge who seem to be doing more or less the right thing rather than more or less the wrong thing, Sterling creeps up because the, um, then there is much less of a concern about um, you know, the need for a major refinancing, the, you know, the need to do something un unbelievably stupid with interest rates and so forth. And um, so I would argue that actually we've got to be looking at Sterling on a 12 to 18 month view, not on a one to six month view. The six month performance was so shockingly bad that actually what we're seeing now is a sort of recovery to sanity again. Does that make Sterling the, the asset class you want to buy compared to the Eurozone? I don't have a particular view on that, but I think we're seeing a recovery from a really pretty depressing situation in the end of the third quarter of last year, um, by which standards most things look okay. Everybody uh, had expected, and we're going to have a deeper dive into China and some macroeconomic factors and Emmanuel Macron's uh, comments and counter comments from other European leaders uh, in, in just a moment. But, you know, all expectations really were that we would be talking about rate increases uh, after the company's investor uh, day and uh, April 26th uh, and the earnings disclosure. Instead, Dominic Gates of the Seattle Times, again, doing tremendous uh, work and breaking a story that there were more 737 problems, this time coming from Spirit Error Systems, uh, the majority error structure provider of the 737 line for very many uh, decades in a company that has a uh, reputation for being able to deliver. Uh, but now uh, the concern is that these defects may apply to airplanes built over the last four years uh, and comes as Boeing is doing engineering changes on the 737 uh, MAX jets uh, in the wake of, of those two crashes. Uh, and on top of that, we now have uh, reports uh, on the defense side, again, more delays on uh, the T-7 trainer aircraft. Richard, kind of start us off on this. I mean, the magnitude, um, you know, are folks overreacting, underreacting? What, what's, you know, and explain what the specific issue is uh, to the audience so they have a better sense of what it is we're talking about this time around and, and what it tells us uh, at a time when the company continues to work hard to get back on track, while at the same time, some persistent stories and frustrations about delayed airplanes, whether they were 787s or, or other ones. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, uh, it gets a little complicated, of course, but as I understand it, two of the eight brackets that join the aft fuselage uh, on some of the MAX 8s uh, where those brackets were provided by a certain supplier, I believe to Spirit, um, might have been manufactured in a way that's not fully compliant. And therefore, they might need to be checked and or replaced. Uh, that affects, you know, possibly a, a not insignificant number of MAX 8s out there and perhaps some PH2, I gather. Um, it's not the end of the world. You know, it... it <laughs> It's probably not going to be a major financial hit. I don't think, obviously, it's not going to shut the production line because they can still build Max 9s and some Max 8s. Uh, I, I think there are three things to focus on, uh, you know, beyond just the headline and the, the cost footprint and the the whatever. And, and of course, putting aside the reputational issue, that's, yeah. Um, the, the, the three things. One, this is bandwidth. Bandwidth, management bandwidth, 
regulatory bandwidth, bandwidth. And that means they're going to be focused on this, on holding people's hands, making sure the supply chain situation is put right and uh, doing whatever needs to be done rather than doing what they kind of sort of need to do. And, you know, in the background also this week, Iceland Air, one of those pioneer uh, thin, long route um, users, you know, they made their long awaited uh, next generation single out purchase to everyone's shock and surprise. It was a 321 XLR. I mean, there's, it's getting to the point where Boeing is announcing very loudly if you have any brains, you know, you'll listen to us and say, and see, we're not doing anything in this class. And yes, it is a huge market. So get online for A321DOs. Sincerely yours, Dave Calhoun. Uh, it's, it's just kind of bizarre. And the management, that should go into rectifying this rather difficult situation is instead putting out fires like this one, a relatively minor fire, but still bandwidth distraction. Ditto on the regulatory front, this will require additional regulatory bandwidth at a time when the FAA is understaffed, has other pressing requirements, you know, whether it's other MAX issues or 777X, to say nothing of the dozens or hundreds of new airframes that want to join the club, plus business chats and whatever else, they are overtaxed, pure and simple. So this thing is kind of a bandwidth suck. And on the man management bandwidth suck, we should also mention point number two, which is something that Ron has mentioned and other folks. Um, how about any discussion at all about returning to technical excellence at Boeing. What is being done? Even just discussing the issue, because they continue to say they don't have a problem. And meanwhile, uh, as we'll discuss, you know, there are other military programs, still plenty, that still emerge with cost overruns and delays and whatever else. So how quickly can that <laughs> be addressed as a, as a management concern? The third issue is that the supply chain, you may talk about who's responsible here. Is it Spirit? Is it one of their suppliers? It comes back to Boeing. And, you know, you look at the past decade where they systematically did their best to wring all the juice out of the lemon that was the supply chain. Uh, both Ron and my uh, colleague Kevin Michaels have written about the ghost of Jose Ignacio Lopez, the fellow at General Motors who had the same strategy coming home to haunt Boeing. What, whoever's problem it is, it doesn't matter. It's now Boeing's problem. Because if you want a supply chain that's able to make the ramp that they've announced for the 737, you have to make sure they're financially healthy. So whatever hit the supply chain takes at this point, that's Boeing's problem financially. So there's no more pushing of the buck into the supply chain. So those are the three issues I see them coming out of the MAX issue for this week. Ron, I want to get your uh, take. Right? I mean, Richard senses this might not cost a lot. Uh, it was a supplier's supplier's problem, uh, right? I mean, somebody passed this along to Spirit. Spirit installed it. It ultimately is, right? I mean, the airplane does have a Boeing label on it, so it ultimately is Boeing, Boeing is responsible. On the other hand, it seems as though there were challenges elsewhere in the system as well, right? I mean, more broadly, it's going to cost somebody something, uh, ultimately, I mean, what's what's your sense of the severity of this, what it means? And more importantly, what does it mean for rate going forward? And interesting, right? An airline that has, uh, you know, is one of those low cost carriers that still remains stable, solvent <laughs> and and still in demand is Iceland Air, um, you know, has has voted with its feet as it has before. Right. I mean, they were among the first 321 Neo operators. Right. Give us give us kind of a sense on what this means sort of in a macro perspective, especially going uh, forward. And then, Sash, want to get your uh, take on this as, as well. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I mean, specifically on the 737, um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation out there as to how much this will cost. 
Um, you know, Boeing actually didn't release an 8K with any of the details, neither did Spirit. So, I mean, it's it's a lot of speculation. Um, like Richard said, it's it's two of eight um, um, fasteners, however you want to call it, you know, things that hold the vertical tail to the fuselage. Um, that joint, it's, it's, a, it's an important uh, joint, load-bearing, uh, can be extreme load-bearing depending on the maneuvering of the airplane. Um, so you're, you're gonna, you have to take out potentially, you have to inspect uh, and potentially take out uh, two of these things. And they were never supposed to come out. These aren't rotables, right? So uh, a way to think about it is, you know, if you, you put the screw in the wall and then you turn it too many times, you got to put a bigger screw in the wall. Uh, same thing here, right? Probably a fix here is a, a replacement thing, but you know, you're going to do some damage most likely when you take this out. So it's a, it's a, it's a going to be a modified component that would, would fix it most likely just speculating, but education, educated speculation. Now that procedure has got to get certified by at least the, the DERs inside Boeing who are affiliated with the FAA, or if it's a big enough change by the FAA itself. And Boeing has said, you know, there's no um, immediate safety concern, but um, it's unclear at this point if, you know, aircraft that are in service are going to have to get this changed or not. Um, I suspect they probably will, and they'll probably have to get it done on some sort of maintenance check, either a C check or a D check, most likely a D check, given, you know, the nature and how invasive this will be. Uh, and we've heard cost estimates of anywhere from $100,000 a plane up to a million dollars an airplane. We've sort of split the difference and said, I don't know, call it 500 you know, K per plane by the time you, you work in all the, you know, the non-recurring engineering and certification costs and blah, 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 it goes down the line. So, you know, it's, it's not, has Boeing done worse? Yes. Um, but it, it's not insignificant. And to Richard's point, it is um, deploying talent to putting out fires where you most likely could be using that, that talent to do other things instead. Um, and that's sort of been the Boeing story for quite some time now that you're using in the engineering talent that you have uh, to, you know, fix maybe errors of the past. Another point to raise that was sort of the first thing that came to mind, if this has been an issue since 2019, and this aircraft has, you know, you know quote unquote, gone through, you know, with a fine tooth comb, A, why they just find it now, uh, B, what happened to bring it to light now, right? Not back in 2019. You know, from 2019 until now, there's been about, you know, call it 650 or so uh, 737s delivered. Uh, and of those, uh, we estimate probably about 500, you know, potentially could be impacted by this. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's material um, and it's important. And it just kind of begs that question, how, you know, how this happened in the first place, given all the scrutiny on this aircraft. It, it makes you scratch your head about the entire system, right? I mean, it's all predicated on trust. It's all predicated on inspection. It's all predicated on paperwork. It's, you know, and, and you know, making sure that you did the right thing at the right time and completely understand. Once you take a screw out of a place that's not supposed to have it be replaced on any regular basis, it is potentially problematic, uh, depending on where it's installed. Sash, your your sense on all of this and and what is it what it means uh, and what it means from a market perspective, right? I mean, on the one hand, Boeing has been telling everybody to expend and expect an increase in uh, 737 rate, and now you have this issue that sits on top of it. Yeah. Okay. So three points. I mean, the first is I'm getting, you know, personally, professionally, very tired of the the rate ramp story. And that's not a criticism of Boeing or a criticism of Airbus. It's a criticism of both of them. They both talk about this rate ramp and they're not delivering. 
yeah, we get the odd month when the product or the deliveries rate approaches what they claim their production rate wants to be, and then it drops back again. I'm particularly as the problems of the supply chain, and we discussed this last week, become more diffuse. I we're down at the quite often the tier two, tier three, tier fours, and individual small shortages in parts lead to delays. It's much harder for manufacturers to address that than it has been in the past. And even if it wasn't harder, they're doing a less good job of it. That's, you know, we can see that with our with our eyes. And so I'm beginning to wonder whether this rate ramp is going to happen in time or not this decade. I, I you know, I really do think there's an issue of whether we should even spend any time worrying about whether Airbus gets to rate 75 or not, or Boeing gets to, uh, you know, 50 or, or 60 or whatever number they come up with, because they don't seem to be able to deliver at a stable rate at their current or other at the rates they claim they were delivering at last year. They're both doing a lousy job. Um, and, you know, they need to be more honest about that. And neither of them are being that. Um, second point I'd make, Iceland Air. Iceland Air is really important um, because Iceland Air was the spiritual home of super long haul narrow body flight. Now they did it with 757s. That was the place where you found nothing but 757s, 200s, 300s, flying right. really long haul transatlantic routes when nobody else really did that. Um, go to Keflavik uh, Airport, as uh, I did on holiday a couple of weeks ago, and it's littered with 757s. Very beautiful, very, very sad, depending on the state of them. But, you know, th that really was, they were the people who, who got uh, 757 long distance uh, transcontinental transoceanic operations right. And therefore they are the poster child for uh, middle of the market long haul. Uh, the fact that they've chosen 321XLR really tells us a huge amount, tells us that is the right aircraft for the job because they've been doing it longer and better than everybody else. Final point is really a question for Richard and Ron, but it might be a rhetorical one. I wonder and I worry about relatively old uh, fundamental aircraft designs and relatively old manufacturing techniques and whether at the end of the day it's harder to get manufacturing consistency harder to get manufacturing quality with those than it is with a modern digital design and modern digital manufacture um, i'll just give you an example i started my career which was a very very long time ago working in the military aircraft industry and we were um upgrading and converting civil airliners, uh, in our case, L-1011 um, Tristars into military tankers. And it was, to my mind, and actually to a lot of the engineers' minds, quite shocking to take to pieces a, a civil aircraft, which had been produced to the then standard. So these were the standards of the early, early mid, late 1970s. Um, take those aircraft, uh, certainly, you know, down to uh, a, a fairly minimal level of of construction take out a lot of the the structure and then rebuild it sort of better and discovering how poor the um the, the level of quality control was and the repeatability of different bits of the structure we found it very difficult to find out where the datum was on um for bits of the cargo hold for example because every frame seemed to be drilled differently um it doesn't seem to me that the some of the problems with the max are that dissimilar to that I wonder whether a modern aircraft designed digitally, manufactured di digitally, a 787, for example, or, you know, indeed an A350 would have the same problems. And if not, isn't this an argument for not according grandfather rights to 
very, very old fundamental design aircraft because you can't, you can't have the same degree of quality assurance uh, in the manufacturing process. I may be being unfair, but it does worry me that the oldest aircraft currently in production is the one that keeps on having these problems. Ron and uh, Sash, uh, from the standpoint of an aeronautical engineer, right? I mean, Boeing has made a big deal about uh, the uh, next generation, new generation airplanes being sort of a, a you know a big step above uh, the original generation, and then 737 Max being another uh, you know sort of quantum step uh, ahead uh, in in terms of uh, design and production. Look, 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 look how fast we can build them uh, at at amazing rates. Uh, and that drives the entire supply chain. I mean, your your sense on that? Yeah, I don't. I don't know if and specifically an, an older design in in some way you know can't be made as consistently or or so on and so forth. Particularly for an aircraft that has been built in the numbers that the the seven three has. Um, the the things you do you do run into. I mean, there's just a simple learning curve, right? I mean, you once you built six thousand of these to get roughly 15% more efficient. If you're on a 15% learning curve, 85% learning curve, you got to build 12,000, right? So you know, how much better you can get and how quickly you can get, it, it just gets a lot harder the more you build. Um, but I think maybe one of the points you're getting at, Sash, is if you do have an, an older an older design, you know what are the limits on what you can do to it? And ultimately, you are um, uh, limited by the physical constraints of of the platform. Um, you, you saw that with uh, the Max in particular, we're trying to get these bigger engines on the aircraft and what you had to do to move them around, changing the center of gravity and all kinds of different things. And kind of, you know, that was all part of the whole story of what led to, um, you know, the, the whole Max tragedy. Uh, and then, you know, it, you, so to your, to, to your question, I think um, there are limits on what you can do with an older design within the constraints of that design, uh, be it that you know that design was done in an older way, and maybe some of the manufacturing processes aren't as you know as modern as some others. Does that necessarily mean it'll be have more errors or you know manufacturing you know goof ups? No, but it does. I think, and I think you know folks would broadly agree with this, who you know kind of work in the space. It does limit what you can do with it, um, and you know there is. I think some agreement out there that, you know, the 737 as a platform has been taken as far as it conceivably possibly could go. Richard, your sense, because I want to get into the geostrategic uh, uh, discussion with uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, and the German finance minister and the Dutch uh, prime minister being involved as well. Go ahead, uh, Richard. Yeah, you know, obviously complete agreement with Ron. Um, he's better qualified, but looking at it from an historical standpoint, it, it bears that out. You know, it's the aircraft that were built to pre-digital, uh, like uh, the legendary multiple series of Nimrod rebuild catastrophes that have taken place over the years, you know, and, and his experience at, uh, I believe, Marshall's with, uh, with L-1011s and whatever else, B-52s, you know, things back then weren't built to a consistent standard. You know, the NG and Max have been built to a, a consistent and right. re well-recorded standard. So, and of course, I agree completely with Ron. It's just a question of what you can do to those pre-fully digitized designs. But then again, you know, you look at the evolution of the F-15, it's pretty impressive and it continues to 
evolve in better ways. So, and that was certainly pre-digital design. I want to go into the macroeconomic uh, strategic uh, relationship between uh, the United States, its allies, uh, and China. Uh, last week on the program, we discussed Emmanuel uh, Macron's uh, statement that Europe had to reduce its dependency on the dollar and Washington uh, for its security and not take tie, uh, not take sides uh, over Taiwan. Uh, otherwise, you know, Europe would become uh, America's vassal. Um, we had uh, Brazil's president, Lula da Silva, um, visit Beijing as well, deliver some of the same messages, come back with economic goodies uh, as well. Um, Richard, kind of start us off on this, right? Because da Silva even took that step that both uh, Beijing and Russia have been counting for, which is to disconnect uh, the real from dollar-based trade. And, and so now they're going to do trade in the future in yuan to real directly without dollars, thereby making their economies, quote, sanctions proof. Um, what, what Was this kind of a big win uh, week for Beijing, ultimately, when America's closest ally is parroting this, uh, you know, sort of rhetoric that we've heard from Beijing and Moscow? And moreover, Emmanuel Macron doubled down uh, on this. And Sash, I want to get your take on this in a minute, because we did discuss this last week, but sort of your China entanglement, disentanglement, right? I mean, what did this week mean? We haven't heard anything about uh, Embraer orders at this point. There was an expectation that that would happen. We haven't seen that yet. But anyway, walk us through what this week has meant, uh, because I want to get Sash's take on it as well, because Macron's comments were also very disruptive from a pan-European perspective, right? I mean, the German finance minister, uh, Christian uh, uh, Lindner, uh, you know, spoke at Princeton and, and sort of said, you know, Macron's comments were naive. Let's get your sense on sort of the, the China entanglement, disentanglement part of this. Yeah, it was a pretty good week for um, for President Xi of China. Um, you know, for all the world, it looked an awful lot like um, uh, Macron and, uh, and 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 Lula going there and saying, "We won't be America's vassal. We would like to interview to be somebody else's vassal or something like that." I mean, it was kind of faintly embarrassing. Um, the only thing one can say is that, well, thank goodness, it's not all of Europe. You know, you've got Ursula von der Leyen uh, saying. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, and, and as you say, uh, the German finance minister and certainly other German leaders, this appears to be very much a, uh, a Macron thing uh, and a very embarrassing Macron one. I kind of was coming away feeling pretty positive uh, about him after his uh, pension reform initiatives and retirement initiative uh, from the other week and his, his win there. But this is this is just deeply embarrassing. And the even more embarrassing aspect is that neither of them really walked away with very much. They got something, um, you know, but reconfirmation of existing Airbus orders, maybe, just maybe, you know, 20 E2s, maybe, uh, and a few other, uh, you know, random economic, uh, you know, things that are probably normally part of China, Brazil, and China, France trade. But of course, the president likes taking credit for that. So it just looks better than it really is. But yeah, all of it very bad from the standpoint of a, a unified Western democracy front. And it's almost like they have complete non-awareness of the importance of maintaining that, that solidarity and, um, and or indeed the identity of you know, open markets and free societies in the face of uh, a fairly aggressive closed society, authoritarian, totalitarian push. So it was embarrassing, uh, unpleasant, and, and very good for President Xi. Sash, your your sense on the week and the reverberations 
uh, of European uh, discord over uh, Macron's trip, uh, right? The European Commission uh, President Ursula von der Leyen did take a much tougher line even there. And afterwards, uh, we heard uh, Lindner's uh, rebuke. Um, and then some concerns also by uh, nations in the East sort of rekindling it. And, you know, I mean, and, you know, you have discord now in the, in the you know, Franco-German alliance, which is, which is never good. What are sort of the concrete implications of all of this, uh, do you think, that goes beyond mere rhetoric? Simple, I, look, simple answer is Europe as a political unified uh, thing isn't working very well at the moment. Now, are you know, it doesn't work very well because the UK, for reasons of it, its own do domestic politics, is, is outside political Europe, for which read the EU. Uh, but I think the astonishing thing is the degree to which the EU doesn't have agreed lines to take, agreed common lines on huge chunks of uh, European um, relationships with other countries and European defence. Um, I was very surprised that Macron decided to double down quite as much as he did this week, because it was very apparent with him, and we talked about this last week, with him coming back from China, quite how badly his comments were being taken by other countries in Europe. Um, and you know the degree to which he is not carrying Europe politically with him the way he'd like to. I mean, Macron has a reputation, although it's probably a self-proclaimed reputation to an extent, for being the think tanker in chief. He's the, he's, you know, the super bright guy who wants to think difficult thoughts um, and to you know, act as a catalyst for political change by, if not thinking the impossible, thinking the pretty damn unlikely and getting people to, uh, uh, you know, there, thereby to change. In European context, that simply isn't working at the moment. What he's doing is pissing people off. And so you're getting a remarkably unified set of views in Scandinavia and Northern Europe, Belgium, uh, Netherlands in particular. On the one hand, Eastern Europe, um, Hungary, Czech Republic, uh, 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 Slovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, um, uh, on the other. And Germany is trending towards those two groups that says, you know, I mean, Russia is the problem. China is the secondary problem. We, Europe, have to deal with Russia and we can't negotiate better behaviour by Russia. And we can't negotiate Russia back to at the very worst outcome, the status quo ante uh, before the invasion of Ukraine in February of last year. France doesn't seem to accept that at all. And so what's happening, and this is astonishing, is that France is becoming isolated in political Europe. Uh, and that's, you know, objectively, that is simply not healthy for any of the countries uh, involved. So let's let's take this to a um, an industrial standpoint. Projects where France is involved and where France might have thought that it was leading, or indeed it might have been agreed that France was lead, leading, the SCAF, FCAS military aircraft being the most important, but also the right. main ground combat system, the replacement next generation tank, um, uh, replacement next generation maritime patrol aircraft, um, and the uh, common indirect fire system, artillery, rocket systems, all of those uh, have suffered a body blow this week because if France is involved and Germany is on the other side and other European countries are involved as well, uh, at the very least they stall and they probably do worse than stall because 
other European nations say, why should we expend political capital in these programs if the French are there and the French are, you know, not, not allied with us uh, politically, economically, um, <coughs> you know, frankly, emotionally on, on this whole thing? You know, why should we waste time on that? We can either buy American or we can do projects where the French are not involved. It's an astonishing situation to be in. <coughs> now, historically, Franco-German relations have always seen through. Franco-German relations have always come through really lousy periods of um, bilateral relations. So when they have disagreed, for example, on uh, European agriculture, as if any of us particularly care about that, but there was a massive row um, between um, uh, uh, German Chancellor Schroeder and President Jacques Chirac um, after a row on farm policy in, in the very, very late 1990s. Every, you know, they eventually made up and came through, but Macron is not helping France and he's certainly not helping Europe at all uh, at the moment. And it's astonishing to see, you know, he's in the hole and he keeps on digging. Uh, well, you have to uh, admire his drive uh, and persistence, although uh, the uh, France's equivalent to the Supreme Court uh, did vote that his pension reforms were legal. So that's going to continue. Right. I mean, that hardens the government's position uh, and, and ensures uh, nationwide uh, demonstrations. Ron, do you want to weigh into this? Because we're, we've got to wrap it up in a, in a couple of minutes, but I want to get your uh, take on this uh, in terms of sort of broader, um, you know, China global trade and what these sentiments in real terms mean, because one would imagine it could actually reflect well for U.S. arms sales uh, in, in the midterm if, if folks might not be as comfortable with France, something they were becoming increasingly comfortable with uh, because of of the tone from Paris, and it, as 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 much as it takes a lot of work to fix, it can take actually a few loose comments or a few of the exact same comments put in the right context for for it to be devastating. Anyway, give, give us give us your sense, and I've got another question to ask you before we uh, end the program today. Yeah, I mean that's exactly the point I was going to raise in an environment where the European industrial base is you know woefully uh, unprepared, put it that way, for the increase in spending that's coming because of what's going on on the Eastern front. Um, you know, France doing this will just bolster sales out you know, to the U S and maybe even other places like Israel or Japan, who knows, but uh, South Korea, the, South Korea, yeah, which has been gaining yeah, ground. Yeah. South Korea too. Right. So uh, just purely from a defense industry perspective, um, you know, it's at least a mod of modest catalyst for, you know, foreign military sales um, to Europe. Um, and let me ask you about uh, the DOD uh, report. Uh, the Pentagon put out uh, its uh, defense con contract finance uh, study. Um, a lot of discussion on what it means, essentially finding that uh, defense contractors uh, are healthy, especially uh, at uh, the prime uh, level for some. Uh, there is concern that this could strike uh, or propel, whether it's lawmakers or the body politic, to sort of uh, focus on profits, right? I mean, banks had a terrific quarter. So whenever you've got large segments of the economy doing well from a profit perspective, throwing out money to shareholders and, uh, you know, executive bonuses, and especially on the defense side, the reluctance by some uh, contractors to invest unless the government uh, invests uh, first, uh, there, there is concern that this could spark an anti-defense industry uh, income backlash. I, I don't want you to necessarily weigh into the politics of it, but what were some of the things that sort of jumped out? It is a very long report. 
uh, and I'm, I, I don't know whether you've had a chance to read all of it yet, but what is your sense on what this means and, and where we are? Richard, if you want to weigh into this a little bit on the political side, because uh, I think we talk to different people, but sometimes we get some of these similar sentiments reflected. Go ahead, Ron. Purely from a financial perspective and, and the big, you know, the high level takeaway was, hey, you know what, we don't really have to change um, how we do contracting with the con- the large contractors, the primes. Um, that's okay. They're doing fine. But uh, when you go down into the lower tiers of the supply chain, we might actually have to make some changes. And you know, we've heard this before that, you know, the cash terms for the lower tiers isn't as, as generous as it is for the primes. And just to keep the health of the, the, you know, the lower tiers of the defense supply chain, maybe we really should make some, some changes. And that, that sentiment we've heard before. And, and honestly, that probably makes a ton of sense. Um, you know, outside of that and kind of pointing out how the defense industry at the prime level um, is healthy and that the primes are making money and so on and so forth. That's really, that's really not new news. I mean, ultimately, if you look at, you know, the defense sector as a whole, uh, in aggregate, um, the defense sector has outperformed the S&P for the last 20 years um, pretty handily. Uh, right. And for and for good reason, right? And and I don't think that's a secret. I mean, that's just that's, that's data that's out there. Uh, but but it really did highlight where are there some weaknesses? And as we've heard before, it really is in the lower tiers, and it's just making sure that those smaller, you know, some some in some cases, sole source, small, sometimes family-owned businesses are healthy because if you lose one of those, it can be very disruptive. Right. And again, I'm not necessarily urging that action. It was interesting that even uh, friends at leading contractors have sort of asked like, hey, can this be perhaps construed in a way, especially among members on a bipartisan basis, right, who who make an issue of, of yeah, of, I mean, I mean, I mean, ultimately, or- I mean, ultimately, it could be right. I mean, it's a it's a report that highlights that the you know, defense industry is is healthy and making money. But 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 honestly, Vago, kind of in my experience so far, I don't. I don't think that's really been the big issue. It's just if the government does pay a fair wage, if you will, or a fair price for a service or a you know a widget, they want to get a widget that works and they want to get it on time. So I think where things really do, you do see some friction is if you are paying you know a, a fair price, and in some cases, why aren't we getting it on time? And why doesn't it work? And why aren't the services always what we thought they were? And I mean, I think those are healthy questions to ask. And, and I think that some of these also look at it as, well, wait a minute, executive compensation is growing by X, share buybacks are Y, and yet some of the rank and file engineers who are actually doing the hard work have a really hard time getting the kind of, right? I mean, their salaries are not going up commensurate to but you know how well the broader company performs, and there are some who focus on that. Uh, Richard, real quick, uh, get your take on it. And I have one last question I have to finish with Ron in the 90 or so seconds we have. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, agreement with uh, Ron, but I would also I'll take it further. You know, I mean, it's sort of half the question. I mean, it's not just the supply base and what it means, particularly for companies that are fully exposed to the difficulties of the commercial world, but also the technical execution question. And uh, of course, we all know what we're talking about with companies that have, you know, perfectly good financial situations, but maybe aren't getting any better. And I go back to the mid 90s. If you were to do a similar test on McDonnell Douglas, you'd actually see it look pretty good. You know, back before the merger with Boeing, you had leadership, you know, talk about how great things were, but they were getting out of commercial. They were screwing up massively, losing key programs and ceasing to be a competitor at all in others. 
And uh, yet, uh, well, they, I believe by the end, they were quadrupling the share price. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm not really sure that we're asking all the right questions here. Sash, is there anything you want to add uh, to, to this North American uh, discussion from a European perspective? Yeah, I mean, look, European companies have, um, to some, you know, they have to because the volumes are lower. There's always been a, uh, a realization that if they, if they didn't spend, European governments are typically far too short-sighted and narrow-minded to do it for them. So there's been a degree of sort of survival spending in that. Um, I'd like to make that a virtue. I think it's a necessity. Uh, in, in, indeed. Uh, Ron, very quickly, 15 seconds, uh, debt uh, discussions uh, seem still stalled uh, in the United States. Are, are debt default worries increasing? I mean, what's the temperature on the street? Or are folks still going with the, it's not a problem until it's a problem and they'll fix it even if it's at the last minute with an 11th hour deal? Is that is that where the most people's heads are? Yeah, I'd say I'd go with, with your latter thing, that it's not a problem until until it's a problem and it most likely won't be a problem because you know we'll see something pop up kind of right at the last minute. Um, and I mean, that's kind of the market psychology in most times anyway, but, um, I think that's, you know, for sure how the market's thinking about it. Guys, thanks very much. Always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Wouldn't be Sunday without you. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah. Pleasure for us too, Vago. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate you doing this, Vago. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much indeed. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. We'll see you all again uh, tomorrow on our Look Ahead program where Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses gives us an update on Russia's war on Ukraine. And Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners takes a look at the week ahead and talks about whatever else is on his mind. Thanks very much and hope everybody has a great day.